I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. And we love to watch. We love to watch. Beat Goth, do crimes. are goth oh yeah oh yeah they're real dark <laughs> i think uh did you Donnie spit Duck into your cup Duck. as you said that <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> actually i had an ice cube okay right. my aunt once told me that she respected uh george w bush because one time he was uh speaking publicly somewhere i don't know um, probably doing racism. I mean, public on, on speaking is very and... scary for a lot of people. So I can't <laughs> yeah. like being like, look, and he did do he, a nine eleven, but... and he uh, act. He was drinking his water, and an ice cube went in his mouth, and that he did a little and put the ice cube back in. She was like, I really identified with him at that moment. And I was like, that's what it takes. It's a very <laughs> specific voter demographic. No one like no one has told you the story about how Hitler loved his dogs. <laughs> don't tell well don't tell her that story if she doesn't know it who knows what could happen peter <laughs> yeah but yeah, she loves her dogs too i don't know uh where we like to i would watch. never wear a tan suit god damn it <laughs> no that was the worst thing that any president's ever done ever where we love to watch we're movie podcast we pick a theme we do movies over the course of that month around that theme but guess what we're in our, like, fifth, I think, fifth annual double summer double month, where we're doing two months. The theme's so big, it can't contain it. It's like, mm. we, we should really announce these, like, the old, and I'm assuming also current monster truck announcers. <laughs> I don't think they've toned it down. I just don't think I'm watching or listening. I'm not listening to the radio or watching the television stations that are playing the monster truck rally. But I doubt they were like, hey. It's the 2020s. It's a Reel new generation, in. new time. Reel it in. Get sarcastic with it. <laughs> oh, don't you want to see cars get truck? Why not? The earth is dying. Yeah, I guess we'll crush like one or two cars. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's what we're going to do with the monster truck rally. Crush like one or two cars. What are you going to do? Doom scroll all day? <laughs> no, I'm sure they're like, Sunday. Yeah, but that's yeah. what you should do because it's a double month that we love to watch. We're doing we a, the month can't contain all of the crazy movies. They should have a car called Doom Roll er? because of the wheels. What about Doom Roller? Sure. It's rollering right over those cars. Yeah, I mean, it can do it. Uh, it crunches them. <laughs> How about just Doom? Doom. Doom. Uh, Doom guy drives Doom car. Uh, I, would, I would like that MF if MF Doom came back from the dead just to be great. claim the title. Be great, yeah. That's the number one reason I want him back from the dead <laughs> to reclaim the title from the hypothetical monster truck that we've created. But yeah, why can we not contain this? This month has been we've been kicking around this idea for a long time, and it's so great, funny because the movie that we're doing today is like the platonic ideal of why we wanted to do this. Um, I think we would have liked to be a little more positive on it 
But this is like this is what it is. So the concept is we're, we we ended up calling it dorm room posters, which was I think a great way to talk about not just like I don't know how I'm going to feel about this movie. I used to like it, but gosh, it's really been like IMDb top fifty to death and film bro to death and and everything like that. Um, and to to fit in some other movies that we were excited to talk about. And this is a category we really had to narrow down. If you're like, why aren't you guys doing this or why aren't you doing that? We probably considered it. There's a lot that, of movies that fall into, like, dorm room poster movies. Um, but we wanted to talk about either movies that we were just excited to have an excuse to talk about. I think that's, like, Goodfellas. Some movies that we've... And then some movies like Donnie Darko and a few other ones we're doing this month where we've really been trying to figure out how to do those movies that we were either obsessed with or, the like, the younger millennial... Um, film uh, cinephiles like connected with at some point they ended up on dorm room posters they ended up showing them to all their friends at like freshman sophomore high school years all those sort of things and then there's like almost a semblance of like man i love that movie but i don't know if i ever need to revisit it not only because i watched it a hundred times but also because like is it really that good or was that it did it just connect with me at the perfect time so we're gonna be doing we can go through the list really quick actually let me pull it up we're kicking off with Donnie Darko, which I do think is like the perfect example of that. This movie came out when I was a freshman in college. I loved it. I showed it to everyone. No one had heard of it, it felt like. And it was, you know, it kind of became a bigger thing. I watched it probably 50 times in three years, and I have not watched it in 20 years. And so, uh, even though I claim to be a fan of the director, Richard Kelly, although now that I'm I'm down to two mov- two movies that we've done for the show that I'm like, it's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, um, but I, I really don't like the my safety reserves. That the only Richard Kelly thing that I actually like now is uh, is the box. The box. I haven't seen the box since it was in theaters. I was an adult. You said you revisited it recently. We've always been talking about years doing ago. that on the show. So clearly, we Very need to complete movie. the trilogy. Although we might as well say this now. You know what he's working on right now, right? Uh, he, did he did he say he's doing a Donnie Darko sequel? He did say he's doing a Donnie Darko. Yep. He, in 2021, he said, fuck this S. Darko shit. I'm doing a sequel. So I'm sure that's going to be great. Uh, hold on. Let me find our list. Um, uh, uh, While you're doing that, another argument that I have here. So we're covering, you know, Donnie Darko and then a bunch of other movies. The argument that I can make here is that if Aaron and I agreed on these eight movies, um, it means that they had the college cultural cachet. Um spanning the times when we went to college. So I went to college from 2009 to 2013. And Aaron, when were you in school? Uh, You know, 1957 through... <laughs> Listen, that's your question. When did you the attend war years, year which which is freshman technically, college? Uh, I, I, September 2020, uh, 20, uh, 2001. I was... So, I, I mean, I really was like... I found out about 9-11 from my, answering, my dorm room answering machine being woken up at like 2 p.m. Because I slept through... Uh, this is the first second week of college, Peter. Yeah. Like, so, why aren't you answering? They've attacked us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I was in fifth grade. So yeah. the idea is that if something survived uh, nearly 15 years of cultural ubiquity, right? Yeah. Like, um, it has some sort of value, particularly to, to college age people or to younger people. And particularly to college age men. So, like, a yeah. sub-theme of the summer is going to be, like, why... 
do young men have such an attachment to these movies, even if they haven't seen them in 10 years, right? Yeah, and, like, I think also, like, through the film bro lens, so in 2001, the IMD movie, like, Top 250, I'm not even sure if it existed in 2001. If it did, it was very new. And it felt like, I remember feeling like, as, like, a, a budding cinephile, a lot of my primary sources for the best movies of all time were stuff like Roger Ebert, were stuff like the AFI films list, and other, like, critics. I had a book of, like, the New York Times thousand best movies of all time. It feels like you're watching the previous generation's uh, favorite movies, right? Like, and it doesn't mean that I didn't connect to a lot of them. But there are so many movies where you're like, oh, my God, this was fantastic. And everyone my age is talking about it. And then you go to Roger Ebert and he, you see, oh, he gave it a two stars. He gave like Fight Club a two stars. He gave Donnie Darko two and a half stars. And it's like you kind of are like there's all these movies that at that age and in that, you know, again, I, I do think it's very explicit to white males, too, that you're like, you know, people aren't connecting with a certain generation or we're the new generation of people who are talking about these awesome movies that for some reason, even critics that we respect are passing over. And so like having a, a, what like a theoretically democratized new list of Canon films and like the IMD uh, top two fifty, which had it's like, you know, notorious and vertigos and godfathers and all those sort of things, but also was recognizing like from my perception, stuff like fight club and, um, and uh, uh, Lord of the Rings and like all so the new Spider-Man, <laughs> you know, all these things that are like, these are amazing movies and they deserve to be recognized as as like critical darlings. And like there's an old guard that feels like they're turning their nose at new things. Like I, I remember feeling that. So like finding these movies, like some of these movies on this list, uh, which are from kind of like the millennial generation and some that are not. I think is a really good prism to look at that because like a lot of things you liked when you were, you know, between 14 and 20 some years old, <laughs> some of it ages really well. And some of it is like, oh, I liked that because that was the first or second incarnation of the thing that it was doing. And then I saw a hundred better versions and realized that that was so there is a little bit of that. And, and why I said last week, like high fidelity is such a good segue into this is that high fidelity could easily be on this list. There wasn't a, it wasn't a college dorm room poster, but it was something that I think a lot of people our age were like, this is a modern classic, deserves to be recognized. Rob is a relatable character. And then you don't, you know, you grow up a little bit and you're like, oh, shit, is that movie going to be embarrassing as shit? And that was a nice movie where we found like, yes, Rob is a not a good person, not someone to emulate. The movie itself is still really strong. And so I'm interested as we go into this double month and I can quickly just say the movie. So. Everyone's on the same yeah. page. Um, so we're doing uh, Donnie Darko. We're doing Fight Club. Goodfellas. Uh, uh, Boondock Saints paired with the documentary Overnight. Uh, Scarface, Train Spotting, Clockwork Orange, and The Shawshank Redemption. So college drum room poster. Also, I think all movies that have even maybe to this day occupied space on the IMDb Top 250. And I think like those those two cross over well. And like, like you said, Peter – there are some of these, like Boondock Saints was a movie that became very popular with men of our generation that I hated from the fucking beginning. There are movies like Fight Club that I fucking latched onto as probably the best movie I had ever seen for like five years. And there's movies like 
you know, Goodfellas or Clockwork Orange or some of these other ones that I connected to as like, oh, this seems like a mo- like you're a movie that you're excited to see and has a lot of, you know, critical uh, status hoisted upon it, and then you know it it connects with the next generation as well. So I think it's I think it's going to be a big mix. I think it's going to be a big mix of how recently we've seen these movies. I think it's going to be a big mix of how much we like them going into it, and I yeah. think. A lot of these will end up being surprises with how we come out of them because, uh, Peter, I was expecting to to not think this was a five star movie anymore. I wasn't expecting to thinking like I'm giving it a very generous three to three and a half stars. Yeah, yeah, and like while we're while we're here, another theme of the summer is going to be: is this a movie that its legacy unfairly swallowed up the actual work itself? Right? Yeah. Like, you know, there are, there are cases like with Goodfellas where I think that's a good thing. The fact that people are still excited about a movie that was made almost 30 years ago is amazing. Like, it's it's a great movie. It's a movie that holds up. And it's a movie that, like... Still I, feels I, as kinetic as ever. I, it's a movie that, like, my 16-year-old cousin was like, have you ever seen this movie? It was on TV. It was the coolest thing I've ever seen. And it's like, it still clicks. And they uh, didn't make their lifestyle around wanting to be a gangster. Um <laughs> But, like, movies like Fight Club have obviously a much more toxic thing. We'll talk about that. Donnie Darko, I think, has an incredibly annoying legacy. Yeah. Uh, as the movie that the alternative kids, the hipster kids, the, you know, the the kids that, like, had more, like, even slightly more, uh, you know, away from the mainstream taste would not shut the fuck up about. <laughs> um and sometimes it was like, you know, the only the only indie movie that these kids had seen in five years and they turn up their nose at like, you know, a, a, like a, a Gus Van Zant movie. But they would yeah. like, but they're like, oh, my God, I wish Hollywood would make more movies like this. And it's like, you don't fucking see them, dude. Somebody yeah. when you were 16 and stone or sorry, somebody when you were 19 and stoned put Donnie Darko on for you and you wouldn't shut up about it for the next 10 years. Yeah, Donnie Darko is really a movie where I think it's easy to if you haven't seen that many movies and you're younger, it's easy to confuse uniqueness and weirdness with like good. But I agree. Like, I don't I, I think there's parts of this movie that I really like. If you came to this episode and were like, fuck, yeah, Donnie Darko is one of my favorite movies um, I'm sorry. Like, it was one of my favorite movies, too. And I'm not saying that you are wrong for feeling that way. I There's a reason that I never have revisited this movie in 20 years. I had a sense that I was too – that, like, I had burned out of it even as I was watching it over and over. Like, you know, my it's not like a movie like I would say even a high fidelity where, like, the 50th time I watched it, I still liked it as much as my first time or close to it. I remember feeling like, you know – Maybe I've seen better stuff at this point and like I wasn't as like I was moving on to showing people uh, David Lynch movies and David Cronenberg movies. Like, you know, I moved like this was cool weirdness. I've, I'd seen more stuff. Yeah. Um, and, there, yeah. and two things here. I also I think both of us had an affection for it. You watched it a lot more. I, I did. I watched it at a friend's house. And then when I got to college, I watched it again. And then I haven't seen it since. But like, I just remember that it being a movie like people were obsessed with. Mm-hmm. Um, and secondly, there's no shame. Uh, in, yeah. Uh, if in if you still love you this movie. Were, yeah. Like your movie you were obsessed with when you were 16 um, yeah. or 18 or whatever. And looking back and being like, eh, there's no shame in that. I mean, everyone does it with music, but for some reason yeah. we're weird about it with movies. Yeah. Um, 
And and I want to say, I will be very obvious, honest when I say that like for like a year, I really liked Boondock Saints. Like I was the perfect age for Boondock Saints. And then like a year and a half later, I had completely turned on that fucking movie. And it was not because people told me it was bad. It was because like just life experiences had led me down that way. Yeah, that's going to be an interesting one because I, I, I'm, I'm going to try to avoid being like, I hated it immediately and I was before everyone else did. But I, I did and I, I want to talk about like, why I felt that way and that I felt like I had probably seen most of its influences and I felt like it did a bad version of a thing that I liked, which was like the Quentin Tarantino-esque, I don't know, postmodern like action movie, uh, self-aware action movie. And, uh, but I, but I will say I wasn't immune to the fact that as the movie grew weirdly popular over the next 10 years that I wasn't like, like feeling like it's a they live situation. Like, please put on the they suck. This sucks glasses. Like, this is a bad movie. Why is why are why are people I know getting tattoos from it? Like, what is you know? Uh, which I I think I've mellowed down from 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 that kind of like how dare people like this thing that I hate uh, twenty year old attitude. But uh, let's yeah let's get into Donnie Darko. So this is our second Richard Kelly movie that we've covered. We covered covered Southland Tales, which I think all of us uh, Ryan. Uh, Bolin was a guest on that episode. I think our point for that movie was that all of us had seen it like once. We thought it was messy and we didn't like it as much as Donnie Darko or the box. And we're like, let's all revisit it. Maybe we're going to like it more than we did when we were, you know, late teens, mid twenties. And we all came away saying, yep, a lot of ambition, (laughs) a lot of like, you know, writing prequel novels and comic books and like other art and stuff like that, but just really just a just a messy movie with some things that are great and some things that are bad. And I think we our take at that time was Donnie Darko was pretty good, but a lot of us hadn't seen it, and that the box was really good and Ryan had never. I, I, I remember very clearly grabbing this randomly at a blockbuster in two thousand one. I think one of my friends had said they liked it. Um freshman in college rented it i i can think of so many movies that became like a big part of my life for either a short amount of time or 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 to this day that i saw in 2001 like i got to see Mulholland drive in theaters that's still one of my top five favorite movies of all time that was the first david lynch movie i saw and then i started you know getting obsessed with david lynch like it was the first time besides like the fly i really got into like a david cronenberg and like i was I was expanding a little bit from the AFI, like I'm going to watch the Pulp Fictions and all the big ones. I never Aliens and RoboCop and stuff like that, and going into some like more like Cohen, like trying to find all the Cohen Brothers movies and stuff like that. That is kind of that next level of like I think cinephile, uh, cinephile evolution. It probably is the first level nowadays, but it was like the second level uh, when 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 I was. And I saw this and I felt like I had never seen a movie like this. I didn't know who Jake Gyllenhaal was. Uh, I didn't know who Maggie Gyllenhaal was. I didn't know who Richard Kelly was. Uh, I thought it was weird that Patrick Swayze was was in the movie. I don't. I was like, I haven't seen him in a movie in forever. Probably for since Tall Tale or whatever. Um, and I loved it. I just wasn't like anything I'd ever seen. I thought it was like a weird I, – I've told you, you know, with our Star Trek stuff, I think you have a sense of like I like weird cosmic time travel parallel universe weirdo shit and this was a movie that was doing it in a way that like was almost designed for 2001 era internet because what did i do i I have very clear memories of this after i saw this movie i went to our computer lab in my dorm and i spent hours hours upon hours 
unlike this website, like I think it was like what is Donnie Darko or something like that, where like it almost was like you had to click on certain things and find clues and it was revealing more detail about what the movie meant, which is like oh, just, like a post Blair Witch kind of thing. Yeah, so I mean, it was a perfect thing for that, right? Like, I'm obsessed with this movie. I find this website that's not like here's what everything means, but it's making me do detective work on the website. Like, oh, I I, I clicked these five things, and that led me to this clue. What do I have to click to get a different clue? And then you're kind of assembling it. We'll talk about this later. What's interesting is like all of the things, a lot of the things on the website is what he, uh, what Richard Kelly eventually put into the director's cut. <laughs> so, like, that kind of... The thing about the director's cut, which I have not seen, but I am aware of what's in it and why I've never had an interest in seeing, is all of the kind of weird stuff from the movie that it's not really explained is explained explicitly. Like, this is what the philosophy of time travel means. This is what is happening. But funnily enough, I felt like a detective finding out all of this stuff through this website that was like piecing it all together i like i i think like i probably was up to like it was one of those three to four in the morning nights where it's like oh shit i should go to bed because i have class or whatever else and i'm just sitting and i'm just pouring over all these details of this movie which was like again just a perfect confluence of like a movie that intrigued my interest and a medium that was kind of new that i had unlimited access to the internet to go and obsess and find clues over and so that was that movie for me. I, I showed it to everyone. I showed it to friends. It was, you know, I was your your annoying friend that made you watch it at a dorm party and whenever. I was that person. I was like, we sh- you haven't seen Donnie Darko? Let's watch Donnie Darko. Like, just a movie that I was cycling through with people, girls I dated, friends, like, movie night stuff. Like, and I watched it a ton, probably in those first couple years. And then, yeah, I just, at some point, I kind of was like, yeah, I'm kind of sick of this. And I, you know, put it on the shelf and I literally never came back to it. And I it always had a strong place in my heart and my head. I was like, oh, I probably would like that movie. I watched it. I, we, we talked about it six years ago that, oh, Donnie Darko's great. But it was a really, like I said, it was a movie that as we were talking about doing this month or this idea, it was like, we have to do Donnie Darko because I can't think of a better example of a movie that I was obsessed with for a while that I never I, I barely even dare to revisit it because there's a lot of things i remember about it that i'm like mm. like am i yeah. gonna think that's stupid and a lot of it i did think was kind of stupid yeah yeah uh there's some some problems here um and it's very interesting like uh when i went to go log my two and a half star rating or whatever um i so if you're gonna come at us that, come like, at among Peter our Moore. friends there's like we're on the like or among our friends like we're kind of on the lower end we're very um, much on the lower end and i uh, i i was looking in like a lot of four stars a lot of five stars and i do wonder how many people have actually like watched it as an adult with a little bit of distance is this like you're setting up your letterboxd account and you're like in love with this movie and you're like i have to log all my favorite movies like no shame and like my my bro- i talked to my brother about this um he was like donnie darko is on tv randomly last week um and uh in a very donnie darko twist we watched yeah. it in the same night um, a portal yeah Probably. and um and he was like seth rogan's in this that's funny and um that's easy to forget but I forgot like, I Drew Barrymore it. was in it, even though she was integral to getting it made in the first yeah. place, which I definitely knew at some point. 
Yeah, and um, which gave her a lot of cool cachet for a lot of us, I think, for a while. But he was he like watched part of it or whatever, and then he kind of like you know he got distracted with like life stuff, right? Um, this is like before the kid was asleep, and uh, and he was like, "Is it still good?" I got a hunch it's not good, but I watched this movie like a hundred times when I was in college, and I was like, "Yeah, like it's not it's not very good." Yeah. But like I think. What, wait, I think what did your brother me. think? Did he was, uh, was he, he was only like, watched, he, only watched, he, he only watched like part of it. He was like, "Is this not very good?" Um. So yeah, I I, I don't know. I I think that there's like it's while it's completely all right if this movie still has a big place in your heart and you've watched it regularly, or if the things that we're highlighting are um just not part of your experience like those don't you don't see those as, as yeah. an issue um totally fair this is also not a movie that either of us loathe but it's just one of those things where it's like a cult movie where i'm like this did not have the legs i expected um, i left the, yeah I, it didn't it, not only did i leave the cult i left the cult early i feel like like i didn't leave it like i'm done with this movie i dislike it but it stopped being in my rotation i was telling you like uh i have a almost a ridiculous amount of blu-rays or hd versions on voodoo and i never like i've never even bothered to buy this or upgrade it. it's not on any wish list anywhere and it's like if we hadn't done it for this episode i probably would have never watched it again because i would have felt like i've seen it enough and i have no necessarily burning desire to go fuck that movie's great i gotta revisit it at some point one of the most interesting ones, I don't know if you saw it, Peter, was our was our many-time guest and, and uh, certified good boy of the show, uh, Ethan Warren, who gave it a legacy rating and a legacy review of four stars and said, I watched this many times, I don't know how to rate it, but like obviously I haven't seen it in 20 years. And then later on gave it another review where he watched it for the first time in 20 years and gave it four and a half stars. He's like, I still love this. And so, yeah, I do... I was hoping that was going to be my experience. I think there's still a lot that I like here clearly more than you, Peter, but I probably started at a higher threshold too. I just like one thing that was very clear. I went back and reread Roger Ebert's review, which at the time I was like, what the fuck, Roger? (laughs) This is a fourth. This should be on your great movie list. You're giving it two and a half stars. I do think he gets it right. He says this is, there's clearly a lot of ideas there's clearly a very talented person who's writing these things and putting this together who just seems brimming with energy and ideas and something different. You know, he fought to get it made really hard. He fought to be the director of this movie. But it's sloppy and some of the acting is really bad and some of the dialogue and the asides feel like, oh, I need a scene to establish their characters. So I'm going to have them talk about like the Smurfs for a little bit, just like like screenwriting 101. You can't just always have plot. So you know, do like a Tarantino thing and have them talk about something that's not relevant to the plot as an insight to their characters. And a lot of that stuff just feels like sloppy might not be the right word, immature in the way that he is writing and the way that he's directing. Um, but he notes that like the, the concept of the jet engine that appears out of nowhere, but is actually from 28 days in the future and the way the plot resolves, he called it a masterstroke. He said like, there's clearly some genius at the center of this. And he had a lot of hope for him as he became a filmmaker to, you know, as because this is a first feature. I mean, there's not there's a lot of our favorite directors that we go back to their first features and we've never seen it because everyone says don't watch it or like it takes them a few movies. And there there clearly was a lot of like, I can't wait to see what this guy does next energy from the review. And I I unfortunately, unlike 2001 era Roger Ebert, I am blessed with 
with a lot of uh, foresight as to what's going to come for the next 22 years. But I do agree. I think I fundamentally agree with that review. There's a lot of talent. There's a lot of originality. It feels like a first feature where not everything's coming together. There's some things that should have been edited out. There's some performances and lines that need a lot of work. There's something exciting at the center of it. And I think, you know, it feels a little sad that he ended up doing Southland Tales, which was this, all of those problems, instead of like learning from that and getting better, it's like all those problems on steroids. And then The Box, which is a movie that you and I love, but it at least, but it is a movie that's like, I'm never going to just stop throwing out whatever I feel like in the moment. And yeah. the, I think the saddest part for me is almost a unanimous unanimous even from people that still rate the original johnny darko as like a five-star movie that feel like oh my god this guy does not know what makes his own movies good because his director's cut for this movie is like universally deplored like it people do not like it and it's because he's like he goes and he spends 30 minutes explaining everything that happens and it's a classic case like oh do you not know what makes you a good filmmaker because you have you have highlighted all the wrong things, which does not make me you know, like, you know, it's hard to get excited for his next movie. And I know that feels like depressing and down. I don't need it that way. But it's like, yeah, maybe it, it is all potential and he's not going to make his five star masterpiece. Yeah. And there's always directors like Michael Mann or Ridley Scott where like pe- people are like they'll argue about their director's cuts and whether or not they missed the point. And like there's always going to be movies where like you like the core movie, but the director comes back and you're like, did you know what movie you made? Did you consult someone? Um, (laughs) Yeah. And there's always going to be that situation. Um, But this movie is, is always on the list of uh, great movies that the director's cut almost ruined. Yeah. And uh, yeah, like I think David Sims wrote a a piece like that. Like, um, and the, the idea here is that like, I actually don't, I think we should have, especially in the day and age of physical media and streaming, we should have access to both, right? Which we do. Um, which we do. Um, I'm not saying one should be deleted, um, but I'm saying that... Uh, yeah, I'm not we, saying you should go to jail. <laughs> but I am saying that, like, um, it's very common for even great directors to get confused about what about their movie works, but... In the when they're in the middle of the production muck, like some sort of angel touches their shoulder, or some sort of clarity of inspiration happens, or random events plus inspiration that like creates something like Donnie Darko, um, the original cut, yeah, the theatrical cut, um, and it is very funny that the thing that everyone loved about the original Donnie Darko was that it had this perfect balance of it had a it had a it had enough of a thematic like powerful through lines so that the ending actually lands and you actually like get a sense of sacrifice or a sense of power in the ending yeah um and but however there's all these chewy little mysteries throughout that you know you can talk about with your friends like you had a a grasp you didn't know people didn't the people that became fans of this are people that didn't walk out and went, what the fuck people there are people that went i don't know if i got all of that but like i I loved what I saw. Yeah. And, and, and when you're served up something that has sort of George Lucasing, where you're like, let's go back and add a lot more explanations. Like it kind of does create a scenario where you're like, but you created this like beautiful little mystery with these loose ends for us to pull on and play with like a cat. And like, now you've like 
taken out a lot of those loose ends, replaced them with like just a million like you've replaced them with like a fucked up sweater. Like yeah, <laughs> I don't George, know. George analogy for loose. Ends, it is but. like George Lucas was in my notes too because he's he. I mean Richard Kelly seems like a George Lucas. All these things that you think are like these genius director innovations to him were compromises that made his movie worse and so like when he went back and did his tinkering or had a chance to do with a bigger budget you're like oh you focused on a lot of the wrong things and you feeling like we we saw the most icely scene and we're like this spaceport sucks it's all barren like no one was thinking that you were thinking that because you had a different vision that your budget wasn't able to reach and then when he you know goes back and quote unquote fixes his vision everyone's like yeah, you were better when you were hamstrung with some of these things. You didn't have the budget to do whatever you want. That's Richard Kelly's thing. He wasn't allowed to do a two-and-a-half-hour cut. He, a lot of these things got cut out. There were scenes he didn't have the budget for. And he's like, I really wanted to – it's this cool, weird, vague mystery that you can take some impressions from and you can piece things together and you can get your story and there's – was enough weird clues on the internet for obsessives to go through. And he's like, no, no, no. I wanted to explain exactly what was going on. Cause what I've come up with is pretty darn good. And <laughs> I would like everyone to understand everything that happened throughout the movie. And I'm going to spend a half hour doing that. It just feels like, um, it feels really silly. And I'm not surprised people went, Oh, that's not what I want. It also doesn't help that like what he's doing or what he's intending to do around parallel universes was, a little bit uh, new, uh, newer is not the right word, but it was less featured in pop culture in 2001. Mm-hmm. We talked about that for that Star Trek episode where, you know, parallel universes in 92, like that was one of the first times it ever been on TV where now like every goddamn blockbuster movie is like explaining the, you know, the concept of multiverses and parallel universe. It, this weird niche thing to me when I was 10 years old has become the most common trope in in modern blockbuster filmmaking. So like to go back and say, hey, instead of the weird oddness, I need to explain that this is a break off universe and there needs to be a resetting and all this other stuff, which we can talk about a little bit. because I, I think the actual plot is very funny to talk about. Um, but, but it's like, it's also a, just a misunderstanding of the time too. Like you aren't ahead of the curve anymore, sharing an exciting new science fiction com concept that hasn't been heavily featured. You are falling behind a very, very, very overused plot line that everyone is sick of. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> And, uh, yeah, the timing is obviously, it's obviously crucial, like, right? Like, but the thing here that I, I think contrasting, contrasting this with Southland Tales is that like, or I think an example of, of how his movies can fall on their face with two movies that in, in many ways are very different is when you look at the idea of the impending doom in Southland Tales and the impending doom in Donnie Darko, where Donnie Darko is like a dream that is slowly being invaded by a nightmare and slowly yep. getting colored by a nightmare. And there's little splashes of it, but like you can't ever forget that there's a nightmare operating in the background. There's shadows operating in the background. Yeah. And with Southland tales, it's not quite the same thing, but Southland tales best, best element is the sense of chaos and the sense that the world is spinning out of control. But like, 
you're just a guy who is at the beach for the day. You're just a guy going to their office job. Like that sense that like particularly a lot of us feel with global warming or when yeah. political events are out of, out of like when political events are out of whack, like I don't know when Trump was elected or whatever. That sense that you're like, the world is spinning out of control and there's a lot of chaos around me, but I still have to exist in this like chaotic world. I still have to like go to my job and shit. And I feel like the sense of chaos that, that, that he has in Southland Tales and the sense of like, you know, sleepwalkers nightmare that we have in um, Donnie Darko, both I think access what his strengths are as a filmmaker and then the worst parts of Southland Tales is when he tries to get into the specific details of why the world is ending. And he literally wrote, I think, comic books that like. Well, that's the thing. Story he, gaps. He, he remember there was a three hour cut. He seems like I think like what we want him to be as a filmmaker and where his actual strengths are is very Lynchian. Right. I've used that example. He doesn't make Lynchian films, but I think he could. Which is the idea of, like, David Lynch will say that he knows exactly what is happening in all of his movies. Like, it's not like he is doing weird stuff for the sake of weird stuff. It is grounded in a story and a narrative and a reality. He knows what's happening in Twin Peaks The Return. He knows exactly what's happening in Lost Highway. What he doesn't feel like he needs to do is explain the universe enough to you he's trying to tell a story within a universe he's created in his head and so what needs to be explained or doesn't need to be explained is based on what story he's trying to tell with characters existing in that and what that could be where richard Carey's strength or richard Ke- uh, kelly's strength lies which is the idea of like i like and this is where donnie darko does succeed to some point i know i have a sense of everything that's happening in this movie i know what frank is I know where the jet engine's coming from. I know what Donnie Darko's doing. I know whether his self-sacrifice is needed or not needed. I'm going to tell a story about this guy who feels like he doesn't understand everything that's going on and is making decisions based on limited information because that's the story I'm trying to tell. And when you see Donnie Darko, you think that's the story that he was trying to tell. And when you find out now, later on, is that he was trying to tell the story of a he was trying to really focus on on the world building and the science fiction so that you understood the concept. That's the Southland Tales too. He wanted to do a three hour movie that explained how everything was, and when he and then the three hour movie he had to cut because everyone booted at con or whatever. And then he, so then he wrote three prequel graphic novels so that hopefully you'd read it so you understood everything he was doing from a world building perspective. He seems hyper focused on world building. Which doesn't matter when it's at, the, at when it's losing like the narrative throughput through line of the story, and but he seems to be like that. If that's what he should be doing, he should be writing comic books and sci-fi novels and and stuff like that. Like, we talk, yeah, we and I think even it, the box like, too. Like, yeah, the, the yeah. box. Like he didn't. As far as I know, he doesn't have tie-in novels or explaining. But the box works because it's like it starts as a movie that's like you know. What happens if you do this moral quandary? You get money, but someone dies, blah, blah, blah. And by the end, it's like, this is a Martian experiment on us? Like, <laughs> you know, but it's not like, I'm sure Richard Kelly has a, like, detailed explanation for why everything happened this way. And it, f- from what I remember about the box, it just kind of keeps getting weirder and weirder and weirder and bigger and bigger. And, like, that escalation is a ton of fun. And then without, the box just resets. Yeah. Without feeling that it needs to over-explain, like, where all this stuff comes from. And to my knowledge, he hasn't done anything to over-explain it. But clearly his instincts are, I want you focused on the world that I built and the meticulous nature of how it works when that is actually, like, what he's the worst at. 
Yeah, an example from a recent episode we covered, it's not probably a universal example, but um, in The Empty Man, a lot of like the strange ambiguity or the spaces between and and, um, how much of this was concocted by the cult and all of that kind of feels purposefully left in the shadows, which makes the overall sense of cosmic horror and cosmic dread just work so much better. Yeah. And the comic books um get into all the nitty-gritty of how this their particular version of the empty man world works and and like it's far more literal and and in my head i'm like yeah like i i agree with you like richard kelly is someone whom like if you really want like if you really want to make something that's like a if you really want to make your uh your dark tower or whatever yeah um like you maybe stick to writing strange yeah. fiction or weird fiction like yeah. um where you maybe... don't you don't need a character to get you through a two-hour a two movie you can go write 80 issues and every month people have to wait for the next one it's not a propulsive narrative like film yes yeah. yeah i just there's uh there's something i mean also an inverse thing i found out recently i really liked all the bloodborne comics and i found out recently that there's a contingent of the bloodborne or the like bloodborne fans or comic fans whatever who really don't like when Alice Cott um, goes fully into the surreal dream space and it stops being like a literalist story. And it's just about like Eileen, the crow wandering like a nightmare. Yeah. And I love those so much, but like in my head, I'm like, is this the sort of story that's better for film? Like, do people like, sort of wandering nightmares of film better um but i think the actual trick is that you're very very lucky if you are a david lynch or a way richard kelly was 20 years ago and people want to see your wandering nightmare where the plot is kind of secondary to the vibes the atmosphere you are incredibly lucky if you're a david you're incredibly lucky if you get to make any art at all you're incredibly lucky if anybody fucking wants to experience that art. And you're incredibly lucky if you get to um, have something that you became a cultural icon and a meme and people care about you and watch your fucking weather reports on Friday <laughs> and shit. But, like the, the yeah. level of like you, it's such a stratified air up there that like people that actually want to sit and like listen to watch your nightmares like um, like that kind of story, like Richard Kelly should feel very, very lucky that he made a movie like Donnie, yeah. like Donnie Darko, that like captured people's sense of of dread, people's sense of nightmare, people's sense of listlessness, particularly in a post two thousand and a uh, post nine eleven kind of world. Yeah, in a specific like era of like eighties um, like nostalgia, like almost anti nostalgia of like you know memories of like no one knew where their kids were and like kids are just kind of left to fend for themselves alone in the world and hopefully you had a good teacher that could direct you because even the good parents are basically like you know everyone's a latchkey kid like i guess why were you sleeping on the golf course again donnie yeah richard kelly said this movie has an anti-nostalgia for the the 80s around like those john hughes kids who knew better than their parents but were left to fend for themselves and feeling like hey, they need a little bit more support. I think that's something that he is somewhat good at in this movie. I think some of those moments, while sometimes poorly scripted, and Jake Gyllenhaal is clearly like learning how to act a little bit more, but I think some of it is really good. And I to put a button on the David Lynch thing, I, I do... Why so many 
people laugh at like Lynchian and how bad other people are at doing David Lynch movies. I think it's because of that thing, though. You should focus a movie on the weird stuff that you can come up with and make a movie about how many weird things you can think about. It's rarely good. But why David Lynch movies work, as we said, is he knows everything that's going on. He just doesn't feel like he needs to explain it to us. And when people are like, hey, if this happened, wouldn't it be weird? It doesn't work because there's a sense of inauthenticness because you're like, okay, like, why did that weird thing happen? And you don't get a sense that it's anything more than someone thought it would be fucking weird for that to happen. Peter, you and I have watched a lot of horror movies in the last 10 years, and so many of the worst, like, oh, this could be a cool Shutter movie with some good ideas that we end up giving two stars to. It's like, it's just doing weird stuff for weird sake, and it doesn't feel like you're connected to anything. And I think Richard Kelly's strength is he understands the universe he's creating. I just wish he would shut the fuck up and stop explaining it to me, because I don't need to know what's going on. Like, I'm glad you get it. That's good. It's ma- it makes your movies better. It makes your movies stand out, I think, from a lot of people. Please don't explain to me everything that's going on in your movies. Yeah, I think the real trick, and maybe a lot of listeners disagree with me here, the real trick is that the only reason, for me, the only reason plot ever matters is because plot delivers you to an emotional point. The only reason that I care about three-act structure is because three-act structure is just like a way... To, that has traditionally worked to make you feel the desired emotion that they want you to feel in the last act of the movie. When directors get too hung up on what you, what uh, the plot machinations are versus how you're feeling, it tends to feel very overwhelming and shitty. And the only time that I really like plotty movies is when the plottiness is like part of the like overall feeling they're trying to communicate because like i love in burn after reading that eventually the plot becomes incomprehensible i've seen that movie like five times and i can't tell you how the i think the gym big coaches get involved and all of that and why they matter big lebowski long goodbye a lot of those are even like older like the big sleep and stuff like that like the convoluted twists and turns which functionally don't matter are there to meet characters and to explore a weird underbelly uh, but yeah if you have but it, it doesn't matter as a matter of fact most of those movies work better the second viewing once you don't care about the plot anymore because you know where it's going once you know you're following sam spade or whoever who's like um you're following you're following jeffrey lebowski you're following uh the, the protagonist um and i, I feel this way about how did we not advice. do the big lebowski for this month that was a clear mistake no, we're gonna we're gonna do it for. Oh, that's Shack right. We did Alley talk about it. Okay. This is the same reason I wouldn't let you do Evil Dead remake for the right. Evil Dead for, for the, the remake best remakes month. month. Because yeah. I knew I wanted. I to remember do Evil we Dead talked month. about it. Never mind. I also was like, <laughs> oh fuck, huge miss. We're gonna. But if do, you're hearing this, we're gonna do it. We have another month. I just rewatched Inherent Vice. Same thing. It actually a lot of those movies, like you said, improve on a second watch because you've kind of forgotten about the plot, and it's more fun to watch somebody who's stuck in the muck and they don't know how stuck they are and they they and you knowing where they're headed towards yeah is like way more emotionally satisfying um because sometimes when you're caught in all the details and the machinations and all of that it's like you're missing the important stuff um before we go through the actual plot of donnie darko I want to go through what this... I, I was debating whether to do this at the end. I, I think by the time we get to the end, we're going to be exhausted and want to be done, and I don't want to do it. So I want to do five minutes here before we go into the plot, which might also help inform people of what we're talking about. So, Peter, do you have any idea what this movie is like 
like all the things that I was talking about of what I went research, and I didn't get as close to like what the director's cut is saying happens because I had trouble remembering all the different buttons I clicked and I never got the full story, but I got a touch of it. Do you know what the functional plot of this movie is? Did you look up any of it? Um, there's the, that at some point Donnie enters a pocket universe that allows him the ability to have time travel. He also has like strength. He has some other shit. He has telekinesis. Yep. So he has, he basically, he is a superhero in a pocket universe trying to solve the primary universe or fix the primary. A hundred percent. It's crazy. (laughs) And and like, this this is all made explicit in the director's cut and everything. So really quickly. So the philosophy of time travel, this is what the book – all this stuff that I'm saying is from the the fake book that he wrote a bunch from, the philosophy of time travel, which solves the entire movie. So they hint at this book that was written by um, this this lady uh, that this happened to her. The theory of the, of the book is that like she was what is Donnie Darko is, which is called a living receiver, and then she wrote about her experiences, and that's what's happening to Donnie Darko. They include a bunch of those pages. That was the mystery that you had to find on this website. They they literally just read out what's happening in the in the director's cut, as I understand it, from the book, and like that explains the movie. So essentially, the theory, the philosophy of time travel is. I know it's so funny, but we got it. I gotta quickly go through this because it's fucking (laughs) hilarious. I'm Um, glad you didn't do this at the end because I would have just drooled. I know that's what I mean. Like I'm like. I think we're going to be a little exhausted getting to the end of this. So doing it now, I think is the right time to do it. And it might explain what's happening in the movie, I guess, to some people. So the primary universe is the universe that we always exist in. Occasionally a tangent universe happens. Now, you may think the jet engine coming through is what started the tangent universe. You would be incorrect. Tangent universes just happen. There's no specific cause. Why the jet engine is important is there's a few things that happen every time a tangent universe randomly comes into being. The first one is that the announcement of the existence of a tangent universe is caused by something called an artifact. That artifact is usually something, I swear this is true, big and noticeable (laughs) and that is the jet engine so the jet engine is not the cause of the tangent universe the jet engine is the artifact announcing to people that are aware of how time travel and our universe works that a pocket universe or tangent universe has been created usually the artifact interacts in some way with the person who has been designated by the universe to solve the problem of the pocket universe who is what is called the living receiver The living receiver in this case is Donnie Darko. So he is essentially now being um, some sort of powers and everyone around him is being constricted to help him put the universe back into its place. That happens by a few different people. There is called the manipulated dead, which essentially means that people that are dead will interact with him in various ways that are dead because the universe is off. So these people wouldn't be dead in the normal universe, but because the their death in the pocket universe is one of the things that should be helping to motivate the living receiver to solve the problem. So Frank, who dies at the end of our understanding of the pocket universe, is a backwards time-traveling ghost that is there to help lead Donnie into the fact that he needs to set things right so that the universe can continue as it is. There's this also mentally, the... This mentally ill young man needs to kill himself. Well, no. So, we're hold on, though. He doesn't at all. We're going to get into that. Uh. So, really quickly. So, so uh, that is also, though, his girlfriend as well because she dies in the pocket universe 
everything she's doing is also to motivate uh, Donnie to save the universe. However, they also are saying that a manic p- pixie ghost girl. Basically, yeah, that's what it's. That's what it's she saying. O- she only exists to, to further his plot. Yeah, because she died, she's a reverse ghost too. Because anyone who dies in the pocket universe is called the manipulated dead, who is who is helping to Donnie get to where he needs to go. Then the, anyone who has any connection to Donnie Darko is called the manipulated living. They begin to do things, but the universe is making them do things by their proximity to the living receiver to get him to where he needs to be to save the universe, which means that everyone from his parents, his sister, to the way that people are interacting with them are doing it somewhat on the force of the universe. This experience stays with them when they go back to the other universe, which is why at the end there's some moments of recognition of like, oh shit, of what happened in the other universe, even if it's not explicit, because they're acting as uh, manipulated living, ultimately impact their when they get reset to the other universe. The they they end up having all these superpowers, which he shows incredible strength when he puts the axe through the thing. Um, pyrotechnics is one where he sets people on fire. The ability to use telekinesis and open portals is another one. There's all these different things that the, the living receiver has powers to that, again, are just listed in the book that we see presented in the movie. In the movie, they're just unexplained. They're like, oh, here's the powers the living receiver gets. And we, oh, so hold on. I'm going to get to the very end. I'm almost done. The The most important part, though, is that the – because uh, – uh, what's her name? Uh, Sparrow, Lady Death or whatever. She was a living receiver at some point. She did not need to die. All that he needs to do to make it right is to essentially send the engine through the portal again, which involves time travel, telekinesis. So his mind, he had telekinesis powers and ripped the jet engine. So it's not a weird mystery anymore. He went to the top of the hill, focused on that jet engine and tore it through to complete that. He did not. That was all that needed to happen to reset the universe. That's essentially a version of that is what Lady Death did. Is that her name, Lady Death? Who's the old lady? Yeah. Yeah, they call her something like Lady Sparrow or whatever. Um, He, on his own volition, made the decision to end his life. (laughs) Had nothing to do, was not needed in resetting the universe at all. Uh, The the idea from what I've seen from, like, writing, and this is not explicitly in the director's cut either, it is explicit that he does not need to kill himself. Um, but the thing is that he was just realized he was, he saw the damage that he was doing and thought that people would be better off without him. And he was in a happy place having realized all of this. He has a reverse. It's a wonderful life. He has a reverse. It's a wonderful life. A little bit of a lights out situation where he's like, look, people would probably be better off if I wasn't in their life anymore, but it had nothing to do with setting the universe back. It's pretty fun that they've managed to, Richard Kelly managed to make a movie where a lead character saves the universe, dies at the end, and yet completely removes all emotional impact that that could have on me and completely skirts any possible uh, Christ-like sacrifice. Yeah. Like... That's a such a common thing to like just do the thing where it's like it's a it's a Jesus figure. It's he a died Jesus for thing. Yeah, he, he died to save everyone. Like and, instead, the only way to set things sad? right was to die. Yeah. Well, he's technically again he's happy. He's reached a level of contentment, which is why you see he's him laughing. Smiling. Yeah. That, I mean, that's the idea that like he's 
he's reached some level of inner peace and like he finally knows happiness and he feels like doing this act will bring happiness to people around him and he's fine self-sacrificing himself but that is unrelated he could have just brought that jet engine through and watched on the hill and it would have been fine I he could have okay, so, wrote the philosophy of time travel to electric boogaloo or whatever. So like that's I mean that is that's what happens in the movie. It's so insane that instead of being like, man, why was he able? Maybe that weird Frank figure who we don't know what is part of his nightmares invading, part of his schizophrenia helped him. But then he drove that axe into the marble. Like, what does that mean? A human boy couldn't do that. It's like, oh, it's one of superpowers the living receiver gets. <laughs> like. It's so stupid, Peter. It's so dumb. It's so dumb. It's also funny, like, okay, so I originally was like, this movie's a little irresponsible. I mean, a lot of horror and psychological thrillers are irresponsible in this way, but I was like, this movie's a little irresponsible with the way it plays around with schizophrenia. Yeah. Um, and mania and paranoia. Like yeah. the movie's a little irresponsible there. It's a twenty it's almost a twenty five year old movie, so you know. He, I mean, he even said that he used it so that he could lean back on to that this could have a scientific explanation which yeah. is not a, good, not a good reason to, to at the end of the movie to make your character um have his delusions be real and the only way out is to kill himself sorry the, the only way off. for him personally to feel like he can get out is to kill himself he wants to go out on a high he's like george costanza like leaving the world on a high note like i had a pretty good day i'm gonna I mean, it's not, it's not, it makes the ending, like I said, feel more like a lights out. Like, yeah, this guy, you know, once you have a really good day, he really recognized he was just being kind of a burden to everyone around him. And look at all the destruction. He could undo all that destruction and make sure it doesn't happen again. Seems like a good, like, good, good thing this guy did. So um, this begs, this begs, so there's a, there's a point I need to make throughout the episode, but before we, I, I won't get into the specific, specifics just yet, which is that, like, Donnie, one of the reasons that I think people like this movie is Donnie is sort of a power fantasy as, like, a, a, as, like, a amazing goth. Like, yeah. So much stuff just falls in his lap, but he's still sad and he's still world weary. Like, he's, you know, it doesn't mean all that much to him. Like, uh, he has a good family. And Everybody, like, and like the John Lindens of the world, he some of the things he's saying are like, "Oh, is he going to grow up to be a Trump conservative?" Yes, <laughs> yes. And every okay, so almost everybody in the movie likes him except for two like unrealistically violent bullies. Um, yeah, and uh, and and two very and two or three very specific adults in places of power. Yes. And they all seem to, pretty much everybody seems to like him. And those adults only exist so he has someone to uh, pwn with logic and reason in a healthy debate. Um, yeah. And he and he, he gets to groan at the dumb conservatives. Like, he gets to sort of, like, hit, hit la like, um, layups. He gets to have that thing that, like, all of us wish we had, which is like, man, I just wish I had the perfect line to put that person in their place. Like, a lot of Donnie is, is a power fantasy, yeah. And that combined with what you just said. And he gets the girlfriend. He gets the girlfriend. She falls in his lap. She literally, like, Drew well, Barrymore is like, well, hold on, do you hold think on. he's cute? And then she's I, like. I know. She should have definitely been. I know people are like, oh, my God, I can't believe she was fired for teaching Graham Greene or whatever. But I think she should be fired by telling a new student she has to. 
sit by the purse boy that she thinks she's the cutest and literally can kick out anyone out of their seat. Like that's not good teacher behavior. No, uh, that's something that like, uh, that's something like if you're si- you're, you're uh, 16 and at summer camp, your, your 18 year old camp counselor can do to kind of bully yeah. you, but like yeah. not an actual authority figure. <laughs> but also like the reason that she sat by him and was like, she only basically interacts with him besides like, being bullied by the other by the bullies that are bullying everyone, um, it's because she's the manipulated dead. Like she is supposed to get close to him. To she's being drawn that direction. Yeah, she was being drawn in that direction. Which also, like, <laughs> we don't need to talk about it for the whole the rest. God of was like, wanna... I'm, "We're gonna get you high. We're gonna get you drunk. We're gonna get you laid." You're in the universe, get... man. You're the living receiver. <laughs> and then you're gonna make sure that a jet engine doesn't like, fall through. I can't stop a... laughing. All That's you gotta so do, here's dumb. what you have to do. You go up to a mountain this day. Don't forget it. You need to open a portal and pull the jet engine out. Once again, bringing the artifact and resetting the time. You, you get it. You get it. You know about I, the artifact. So, you know about the manipulate dead. You, you get it all. It's basically just 28 days. Use your super telekinesis power. Take that jet engine off your parents' plane. Throw it into your house. Bada bing. Bada boom. Bada boom. <laughs> go, you go back. Go watch the Sparkle Motion recital. Maybe tell people about Patrick Swayze's character if you get a chance. But that's the other director's cut change. I think there was a lot of understandable criticism, which is one of the first things I thought. It's like, cool, he's dead, and the universe is back. So Patrick Swayze gets to continue to have his child pornography dungeon or whatever. And the director's cut shows what happens, does a montage of the next 28 days without Donnie Darko. And one of the things is that Patrick Swayze kills himself over the guilt. Yeah. Well, they show, uh, they show one shot from that in the theatrical cut finale, which is at the end of the movie, he's He's crying. crying. Well, that's everyone waking up. So that's the, it's the kind of like, this guy knows he's a piece of shit, but I think the, the, the theatrical cut implies like, but no one's there to stop him anymore. (laughs) So Jesus. I'm glad he I'm glad he feels guilt. I guess. I, I, yeah. So like, yeah. Donnie is like this. Like I I, I like like this movie. Donnie most now. Um, Donnie well, is a yeah, so Donnie Donnie is a a power fantasy a Mary Sue whatever. He's like essentially just like a a way for the writer to connect with a way for the writer to just sort of be like this is a protagonist i can i can get along with he always has the right line at the end of the movie he dies and everyone has to think about how much they loved him yeah and uh which is something we've talked about before like that's a that's a thing that like people be like what if i died everyone would be really fucking bummed out about that right it's like it's how 16 year olds react to the tom sawyer thing right yeah and um all of this happens and then okay so now i'm like it's even weirder because like Richard Kelly clearly created like a surrogate, a director surrogate character. And then he was like, you know what? That character should save the world and then kill himself. Well, yeah. yeah it's <laughs> So <laughs> that is the, that's why people hate the director's cut. Cause it's why, like, why would he oh, not? He, in none, the, of these, he, none of somebody these, none of these makes a sacrifice. It's meaningful. People care about it. It's the, at the end of the movie. I was like, you know what? Like, it, it's pretty it's pretty interesting that all he has to do is just like go to bed and think about like the fact that he's saving all these people and that's yeah, all he has they'll, to do. they'll never know how how he's the guy standing in the corner of that party right they'll never know <laughs> i saved i went to bed and died for him but no he did not have to do that which is a dumb change but like all of it like again the idea of like 
and maybe he's like I we know that he started from like the idea of like what if a jet engine fell in a house and they couldn't find the plane like that's kind of where he started from from an idea when he was in film school but it also feels like he did the thing where he which is actually not a bad writing technique he created the universe well okay well if a jet engine fall what would be happening maybe that's the announcement that a parallel universe is formed what do you need to do to go back to the parallel you you know and he kind of created his own world building around that and then wrote the story about the character and took out all of the explaining in the world building like you can make that case that it's not a terrible writing exercise i need to understand how this universe works we've talked about that enough i'm gonna erase all the things so i i know where the story's going i know who this is and yes you and i would say this sounds like it was written by a 22 year old college kid who had some very what he thought genius ideas of superpowers and parallel universes but fuck you wipe all that out of the movie and just leave the weird impression of all of it great that actually works okay. Him like insisting like people need to know about the living receivers explicitly. <laughs> it's like, oof, boy, buddy. Like this yeah. half rate X Men and Doctor Strange combination is actually not so good. I don't know how so, to tell you. There's one reference in the theatrical cut, basically of one that Donnie has superpowers or whatever, and that's that Gretchen says to him, um, Donnie Darko. It's like a it's like a superhero's name. Um, and I find that very funny because at that moment, I don't know, an hour into the movie, I went, oh my God, this movie's been out for 22 years. This movie's called Donnie Darko. (laughs) I know the the amount of times people be like, be like, that's Ted. That's Carl. That's Donnie Darko. (laughs) Like you guys like saying his, his whole name a little bit. I think and, and, in a, in a way though like this movie's like a character who is a goth who never stopped being goth after he grew up. He's yeah. like, yeah, yeah, you guys. And then people are like listening to like uh, Outcast or whatever when Will Forte was it was on SNL, and he's like, yeah. yeah, it's pretty good. You guys ever heard of Echo and the Bunnymen? It's like if uh, it's like shitty Unbreakable, but if. Um, if uh, if Unbreakable did not end with confirmation that he's a superhero, and then twenty years later M Night Shyamalan went to your house personally and was like, "That guy was a superhero." <laughs> <laughs> did you get it? <laughs> the studio wouldn't let me say it, but he was a super. It's like Superman, and that was his Lex Luthor. Do you like that? That is what it's like. It's so stupid. Oh my god! Like I, I'm sorry. Like. And thankfully, like, even big fans of this movie hate the director's cut because of this. So, like, it over-explains and it ruins it. Like, that is the general consensus of still people that put this on their favorite movie list. But, like, what's funny is is that it still worked for me when I found some of this stuff on the website. Because I would read a page of, like, maybe it's this of that philosophy of time travel. But, like, having it all connected out of, like, this is this and this is this and this is this. It's like, oh. This is stupid. Yeah. So, all right. That's thankfully, like, again, you can canonically remove that from your mind. It's not in the theatrical cut to explicit ways. Unfortunately, if my sharing that knowledge ruined the theatrical cut more for you, because technically that all exists. I'm sorry. We're going to talk about the theatrical cut. Yes. The the non-superhero version of Donald Darko.
tell Donald Darko. That's there's literally a medicine bottle that says Donald Darko on it. Um, I I I actually did a double take. It's been so long since I've seen this. I did not remember him waking up in a on the street, and, the, and I'm like, oh fuck, is this a director's cut? That's on HBO. They have it labeled wrong, but I guess he always did. I did remember. Yeah, Donald Darko wakes up in the street. He looks at the sky. He's like, hmm, this is my bed. This is my beautiful house. This is not my beautiful bed. <laughs> <laughs> Um, this is why we do this. Is not my beautiful sister. Yeah, who is my sister? Who is my sister? That was his suggestion. Apparently, when he got cast, there was a lot of casting problems with this. A lot of financing things. Drew Barrymore actually like produced it through her production company because uh, Richard Kelly was very explicit that he wanted to direct his story. Had trouble finding first time screenwriter right out of film school. Had trouble finding, but uh, Drew Barrymore loved this and was like, "I'm gonna come. I'm gonna be in the movie. I'm gonna be the worst actor in it." Not very good. She is. She does have. I don't think. I don't think Drew Barrymore is a good actor. She does have the juice, though. Like when she walks into a scene before she even says a word, you're like, "That's an actor. That's an actor." She. She's good in some. Like when I like not to like. I think she's good in like the wedding singer. Like I think she's good in. I think she has a very obvious energy and charisma that if it's channeled into the right role. I think it can work really well, which is the role being like kind of probably what Drew Barrymore is like in real life. She she's a movie star more than an actor, right? True, yeah. But when she's playing this, it is there's the, there's a lot of kind of corny line deliveries that eluded me when I was younger. Uh, she is not well served by the material, the script, or her performance. But she did get the movie made. Good on her. And this was probably something that maybe got through some channels because it had Drew Barrymore's name on the. Yeah, you know, a hundred. Well, that's the hundred percent true. That's explicitly true. Um, not just so, for money. I mean, like in terms of like, access, oh, other people. Yeah, yeah. You can't get Seth Rogen. Yeah, He's fresh off of Freaks and Geeks. Um, so yeah, he wakes up. He's and he drives back home. This movie does a trick that it's going to do five times, and it works every time, in my opinion. I actually think it's like one of the best parts of this movie. Uh, he has a good use of eighties songs that like. I feel like now that these 80s songs would be overused if I found them in a movie. I think that's because people liked them from this movie. Um, I had heard stuff like Echo and the Bunny Man before, but I definitely the, – the only song I knew of Tears for Fears that I'm aware of when I saw this movie was Shout, which I hated and still hate. Shout, shout. Uh, but I instantly fell in love with uh, the way that he uses kind of these – now seemingly more obvious 80s songs to kind of show like you know as he drives he bikes through the town you hear the killing moon and it goes past all the different players later on he's going to do that with tears for fears head over heels in a very famous sequence uh where he's going through all the different players at the school to tears for fears it's going to happen at the end with a cover of a tears for fears song that became very popular including for myself after this movie came out uh mad world uh gary jewel's cover of a Tears for Fear song. He, he does the trick a lot. He does it for Notorious too. I think they're good songs. I think it's well done. I think, uh, I don't think Richard Kelly had a career doing music videos, but he'd be well suited for it because he does, he does that stuff really good. And I, I think the tracks are good. Yeah, yeah. I think he, he selects soundtracks pretty well. You know the change that he wanted to make for the director's cut, right? Talk well, about he did make it. Today. He moved the Milky Way song to later and he, 
had a different song at the party for when they have sex. And again, it seems like a bunch of mistakes from what I read. Yeah, yeah. The, I think the worst one is obviously the killing. He he didn't have killing moon in it. This, we kind of talked about that, but like the the killing moon in, in exchange for that NXS song, it's just that that sounds horrid. Um, that's a I good. Like that that's NXS that's my favorite NXS song. Actually, I like NXS. Yeah, it's yeah. just that that's like a wedding song, yeah. and like this movie needs a a moody out there it's a movie where the world ends on halloween unless a goth kid kills himself like this movie well, needs to start with like hold some... on unless a goth kid resends an artifact through a portal we have right. agreed that that is not the movie okay sorry <laughs> oh. <laughs> we've agreed we're not going to talk about the fucking director's cut. okay uh, um, but, but you know what i'm saying right like this is a movie where a goth kid unless he oh, kills killing himself moon on is halloween su- Killing ends. Moon is such a great ominous pop song. Like it, it. I mean, it literally is called the Killing Moon. It feels like something bad is happening. Um, it's, a, it's a sort of song that still gets played on like classic rock radio, even by people that don't know that Echo and Bunny Men made like probably two perfect rock albums. Yeah, it's a song that legitimately gives me anxiety. Like, and I mean that in the best possible way. Like, it feels ominous. Um, it's a little sickly. It kind of reminds me of the vibe of like near dark when they're just kind of roaming around looking for people to kill. Yeah. So we are introduced to his family. He has a mom, his dad, he's an older sister who wants to vote for Dukakis. This film is set in 1988. Um, his parents are Reaganites who don't think that she should vote for Dukakis, but they have like a very like uh, upper middle class like affluence that like you know politics is not like a life or death situation for any of them and you know it's the young it's the michael j fox and family ties like the but a reverse right the young kid who uh is like fuck you mom and dad but in a nice way i'm voting for dukakis can't believe you're voting for this fascist like but they still have dinner they still have a good time they have a younger sister who's barely in the movie except she's part of a dance group (laughs) called sparkle motion (laughs) and she's the lead star of s darko yep she is uh the lead character i should say not the lead star yeah there was a we didn't talk about this we i think we alluded to there is a D, hilariously there's a dtv sequel called s darko about uh donnie darko's younger sister it is universally reviled and uh richard kelly has very explicitly and clearly in not a chill way <laughs> i forget the exact quote i said it to you like this is not a calm person like okay just let me be clear i had nothing to do with this in any capacity i wouldn't have they didn't ask me like uh yeah so we i almost watched it for this but we we're, we're already getting long on time so i'm glad i did not but um they go to what I think is a private school. Her, his older sister is, uh, uh, is about to is trying to get into Harvard. Seems to be taking a year she off took after a gap high school. Year. She took a gap year. Yep, that was like my he's sense like as well. like I don't think she's in high school. She parties with high school kids, but she's not in high school. Yeah, um, sh- uh, Donnie is has problems. He sees a therapist. Uh, I think the scene where Donnie Darko lets, uh, lets everyone know that he is like a he's a troubled goth boy um at the dinner table is like embarrassing like oh, i was embarrassed. It's so embarrassing it's so embarrassing and i don't it's remember a terrible way to introduce your character yeah how exactly do you suck a fuck like it's like come on like it is a little that's i mean that is right like the the dialogue of like i in this scene i need this to happen or i need someone to know this about the character and it happening in the least subtle most cringeworthy way that I can think of is the is like the immaturity on display here. Like 
he could have done that a million different subtler ways. I actually think most of his performance and most of the lines when he's like, I'm a troubled kid is very embarrassing. Like in a, in a an, way that, yeah. For an actor who I consider a great actor. Great actor. And he has done. Bad boyfriend from what I've heard. <laughs> from one person. I, he has done at least five, if not 10 other movies where he played a goth little weirdo who's weird and that he's way better in and are way better movies. Yeah. Like, I'm just thinking of, like, Prisoners and shit and Nightcrawler. I think I it's a, really I think like it's, I think it's a, it, well, I mean, he, he obviously is a younger actor. I think it's also just a script issue. There's a lot of people that uh, their dialogue is not good. Velvet Buzzsaw. Like, I can even yeah. think of, I can think of movies that people don't even particularly love that I'm like, I like Jake Gyllenhaal as a weird little guy in it. He's and, great. As, I mean, all I have to see is Oakja and be like, I want him as a weird little guy or like the John... Mulaney um, yes. kid special where he's Mr. A sack music. lunch bunch. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. You're, you're completely right. Um, and, and I, it, but the thing is, the thing is where we're objectively wrong here, Aaron, millions of like suburban kids and college age kids, including us saw this movie, saw him, you know, swear at his parents and his sister at the dinner table, um, call his mom a bitch for asking how therapy was. <laughs> um, and then uh, do all that, and then we were I like, think you're "Yeah, they're like, yeah, jo- Donnie, Donnie, you're in the right, you're Donnie in the right." It. I well, this I is... know that that is the. Uh, it's like a lot of things. There's so many things that you relate to. I, I don't think I related to this necessarily, but like that you I don't didn't. see as cringeworthy when you're 18, and then you watch it when you're 40, and you're like, "Oh, it's a li- it's a little bit tryhard." But you're 100 percent right. The thing about kids, though, is that they are tryhard. I remember. How many times have you been around like a, a, a 10 year old who just learned like who feels like they can say the F word around you and it's just like you're not using swearing right. Like you're not doing a good job. You're using it to be like you're using it to get a reaction and it comes across as fake. I think you can. I, I think you're right. We are objectively wrong that like if you're 18 and you saw this, would you feel the same like, oh, my God, this is somewhat embarrassing? Uh, well, I can tell you I didn't. So, Yeah. I, I felt, I felt when I watched this movie, I felt like Donnie was this like perfect kind of reflection of my own, yeah. like I was a uh, depressed teenager who, uh, his parents had him in therapy and I was in the suburbs and yeah. You went, you went yada, to private yada. school with uniforms probably? I did. I went to a private school with uniforms. It was a Catholic school. Did you ever um, think you had, were being visited by the manipulated dead? Um, no. Would you call yourself no. a living receiver? Uh, <laughs> I was a, I was a Keystone Light receiver, if you know what okay. I mean. Um, nope. But I, I, I don't want to knock this too badly because I love Jake Gyllenhaal as an actor. But like, I did watch this movie, and it has an immediate uh problem with Donnie being too annoying. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Make him. Make him. Make. You went a little bit too hard on like. I need the audience to know this guy troubled. So it feels like they, it feels like he came up with it, it, What's interesting about this movie is it feels like it's like anti-nostalgia, but also like he loves his parents and the movie never really throws his parents entirely under the bus. His parents seem to have a tender marriage where they talk to each other and they are not super strict about rules. They'll very often, they'll back their kid, they'll back their kid up. Yeah. They got him into therapy and ask him how therapy's going. It's just like, they're overwhelmed. They don't know how to. 
Yeah. They don't, they don't know how to solve I, this problem. And like they, and like, what is the answer that they become helicopter parents? Like, I don't, I don't totally know what, like other than just being a teenager, I don't totally know what the movie is trying to communicate about his relationship with his family. Because like, he seems to, by the end, he seems to like love them and want to save them with the rest of the universe. Yeah. I don't think the implication is that they're bad parents or a lot of the parents besides, uh, what's her name? The church obsessed person. Yeah. Um, I do think what he's trying to say, and this is not my interpretation, he's explicitly said this, is that um, they're all manipulated living. No. Um, they. Uh, That's why I didn't want to talk about this shit. <laughs> sorry. Um, it's, it's just so funny. Now it's, I know, it's week. funny to me. Um, they, <laughs> But, like, the idea that the kids are alone, like, the parents are not unsupportive. We need to get fit therapy. But they also don't know what to do or how to talk to him necessarily. So they ask how therapy is going. They kind of leave him on his own. I agree. I don't know what the right answer is. And I think there's probably some balance. But that kind of like, hey, let's talk about your feelings or something like that. They don't have that relationship with your kids. It's not uncommon for what are functionally boomer parents and Gen X uh, kids, which is what you'd be, you know, if you were 16 in 1988, you're a Gen X, or your parents might even be greatest generation as, or like older boomers, right? Like, so I don't know, but I think there's that idea of like parents weren't there to be supportive generally. Like they weren't there for you in the same way. They were like, I've raised you and I'll try to point you in the right direction, but like, I don't know, like world's different. Good luck out there. We didn't have schizophrenia so- in my day. Like that and like so that's what he's trying to get at is like yeah. like that kind of John Hughes things where the parents are not bad, but they're ineffectual and barely present. How well that works, I think is I- like I have I have a hard time getting a bead on like Donnie's actual relationship with his parents. It seems like her his sister has a healthy relationship with his parents. Like sometimes it feels like so I, I agree, like it's 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 a little hard, but that's what he was going for. And I don't think that's a bad angle to just be like, you know, like how many of those John Cusack movies, like, you know, insanity thing or like, um, you know, his parents just leave them and better off dead. They're like there and getting books to try to talk like that. That's a parody of like, this is what 80s parents were like. And that's kind of what it's going for without painting them as a villain. I think I, you know, I, I, I see, I, I see that. Um, and it's just at times it becomes confusing about like what he's trying to convey about his home life because like at the end of the day he does like decide that like they meet they're meaningful to him and that he's like becomes like thankful for them he doesn't completely reject them like usually in the john hughes movies it doesn't end with like macaulay culkin or molly ringwald um saving their parents from like the columbian mob or whatever right well, yeah, well, I mean, but, like, Ferris Bueller's probably a really good ex- example, right? His parents aren't bad. They're clueless, and he has his own life that exists completely outside of the realm of his parents. And part, so of, the, he, part of the fun of that movie is he's going to be fine. Like, he yeah, doesn't need his parents. But, yeah, but if he needed his parents, which Donnie Darko does, what what would that look like? Right? That's kind of what he's getting at, which I, I'm not saying he's successful. I do think that's an interesting lens to kind of portray it. And so, like, the parents in this movie are... They're either too present, like, um, uh, fuck, what's her name? Kitty? Is that the church lady? Oh, Kitty, yes. Like, besides Kitty, who, like, is a classic, like, ban all the book, Reagan conservative, like, type, type person, moral police, um, and, or just like, uh, just let them do it. They're basically adults now. 
Like we go to the plays, we do the things like, you know, I, I it's, it's an interesting angle. Like a lot of movies cover bad parents or good parents or supportive parents. Like how about just present parents? Like that's what they do. They say I'm present, but they're not really, the kids are on their own when they have actual challenges. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, you can see that in the fact that he doesn't know the therapist's name. Yeah. But like, there's 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 just like a lot of little small moments like donnie when he tells his mom to get out of his room or whatever and he calls her a bitch um there's a little, it a feels little... really forced and then he there's a long shot of donnie looking sad that he did that and then yeah. you're like there's kind of that's like a that's a that is a emotional loose thread like there's no payoff for that like no um and then i think i think donnie's really tough and then they to spend get... like so much time on the parents having a tender relationship like it's a two-hour movie and they actually have like probably five minutes of scenes of just the mom and dad talking to each other yeah um i i actually think it's really hard to get a beat on donnie as a character like he's most interesting when he is dealing with the supernatural component which is a lot of the movie right like well so to kind of move the plot around he he starts all of a sudden 20 the day after uh 28 days or the day after we see him wake up, he wakes up it's on October a golf October 2nd, yeah. October 2nd. He sees a, a but, guy in a bunny suit, speaks in a creepy voice, tells him the world's going to end in 28 days, 9 hours, whatever. And he writes it. It gets written on his arm in this uh, elaborate font. Um, and that's it. And that's Frank the Bunny. who's He, he says to his therapist, I made a new imagine, I made a new friend. And she's like, real or imaginary? And he's like, imaginary. And, and they're trying to say it's a new schizophrenic. What this is, as we said, is like basically someone who in the terms of theatrical cut is a real person who is a ghost from the future who will be killed by Donnie ultimately Mm -hmm. who's trying to warn him about something that is going to happen or that he needs to do in order to save the world because the world's gonna end so he has all those scenes where he's interfacing with Frank or doing those sort of things the problem is is that any scene where he's just Donnie Darko and a high school kid he is really hard to pin down like and it's hard to, to understand if like are we seeing a real version of him or are we seeing the unmedicated like from a director standpoint how he wants to portray the character are we seeing an unmedicated loose canon that doesn't represent the donnie that so many people know and love like when he is acting kind of a jerk to some of the other kids in his school when he's smoking a cigarette when he's um eventually like uh talking about like getting obsessed about the the smurf issue and going on and on about that when he's like saying like how do you how dare you tell this person this person's overweight because of fear just tell her to get a lazy ass off like is that the donnie that everyone loves or is that an unmedicated or unmedicated person going through a schizophrenic like what is the movie trying to say that what we're seeing here because he does have a really hard um it's hard to get a beat on who he is normally and because he's so affected by all of the supernatural elements and the weird elements that are happening it's hard to gauge of like this is his unmedicated mind trying to process a lot of very challenging things that are happening at once or is this like how he is normally and i I think that was that was a really new takeaway for me is like who is like outside of all this because they note that he's not taking his medication that he's been prescribed for schizophrenia. 
and everyone's and like he's he's doing all these things that some people are concerned about and it's like really hard to gauge like who is this person medicated normally not being beset by night terrors not talking to frank about the end of the world and i i don't really have a good picture of it maybe you do but um no but i think you could probably chalk some of this up to he has the proper aesthetics of a character and that teens like this are so listless and torn between like their good days and their bad days and donnie is torn between the daytime version of him and the nighttime version of him that like if it's not intentional it's a positive about the movie that donnie is sort of all over the map because that reflects the actual experience of being a teenager yeah you you there's this is just something that in terms of relatability and the, the reason that why this movie was on a million uh you know uh high school uh, teenager and early 20s uh dorm room and and uh bedroom walls is uh because ultimately donnie is relatable yeah and um i have i have an argument for two other things okay. that like without without these three things in line this movie is not the cult hit that it is okay let's do it one is that yeah? Donnie's relatable. Jake Gyllenhaal is inherently a sympathetic character actor, even if yeah, the character's I think it's not true. sympathetic. It's just it's part of the deal. Um, and a lot of people can relate that sort of listless. One day he's full of energy, and one day he's super shy and weird kind of yeah. energy. Yeah, that's fair. Um, two is the music where he talked about Echo and the Bunny Men, Joy Division. Like it's got it's got like great needle drops. Not a lot of them. But great needle drops. This like I don't think this movie is this movie without Mad World. A hundred percent. Well, <laughs> literally, people rediscovered this movie because they loved the Gears of War trailer and found out that it was from Donnie Darko. Like, yeah, this movie had yeah. a, a, a DVD life that where wherein like the DVD sales were like. Well, on top of that, it got re released because it kept being popular. So it made five hundred thousand dollars in its original theatrical release. Mainly because, like, some of the stuff with 9-11, they were, like, yeah. uh, putting... I don't want to blame it all on 9-11. <laughs> yeah. In this case, you can't. <laughs> Movies released in 2001 can be blamed on 9-11. Um, but... Collateral uh, Damage, this... There's a bunch of movies that had fucked up shit going big on. Big Trouble, yeah. Um, but it did make $10 million at the, at the actual box office on top of DVD and Blu-ray and everything sales. Because they re-released it a couple times and, like... You know, people went and saw it. Like, so it had a budget of four point five million. It made ten million dollars in overall the the movie theater. So, I mean, it actually was a theatrical hit, just a very delayed theatrical hit. Yeah. And Mad World was a a radio hit. Um, yeah. Mad World was more successful than the movie was. Um, it was number one in England, I think. Like a number yeah. one, but it took till even that. Like I said, it was a number one song in England in two thousand three. So that's two years after this movie comes out. Like yeah. it, it, it just everything about this has long legs. Yeah. Um, name a second Gary Jewell song. I don't know. Um, and uh, he doesn't run number, the <laughs> number three is the image of Frank the Bunny. Frank yeah. the Bunny is an Great indelible, poster. iconic, cultic image that like that it, scene of him and Gretchen at the movie with the butt. Like that's anytime you see like Empire Magazine and this is in there. That's the image. It's a great creepy image. If I saw that and hadn't seen the movie, I would go, I want to see that movie. It was like that first time I saw that image from the Company of Wolves where, like, the people are at the – the wolves are at the table. And you're like, what the fuck is this movie? Like, I need to see this movie. That's uh, – when they show those scenes of the bunny at the movie theater, 
I I imagine that many people are like, I got to see this fucking movie. It, and in, exactly, it's an indelible yeah. cultic image. Like it's a, without those three kind of elements, this movie is not the movie it is. If you have a weaker yep. actor in the lead or someone that's less like relatable in their gothicness. Um, if he couldn't, if he didn't have that $4 million budget or whatever, that he could actually afford Echo and the Bunnymen and, and all these other songs. Um, and three, if he had cheaped out on what Frank the Bunny looked like or went a different direction that people found funny instead of terrifying. Or did like a Harvey thing where it's just not there. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, it's, this movie is not, we're not talking about it right now. It's, it's, it's not a movie. It's not. Yeah, it's I, not, I, this is not a Goodfellas situation where there's just like momentum behind yeah, it. Yeah, it's a great movie you, that has just continued to every generation finds it at that like t- tip of the iceberg to cinephilia and yeah. goes, this rules. Still it, rules. You, Goodfellas, yeah. you could take out Rags to Riches in the opening. You could take out the line, uh, I always knew I wanted to be a gangster. You could take out the Layla piano exit when all those people are getting murdered at the end. You could take out all of those and it would still be a five-star incredible yeah, I movie. Mean, like, <laughs> it's an old joke, but Goodfellas works so well that he made it again and made it longer. And everyone loves that movie, too. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. I fucking love Casino. And it does so many of the same things. So, yeah, to kind of kind of go through here so there you know there is a lot of there's a lot of different threads to the plot there is a teacher played by drew barrymore who's trying to teach the kids like stuff that there is some concern from the principal and the pta and other things around like they're being a little too direct with the type of stories and the allegorical stories donnie is beset by those visions by frank that is revealing secrets it's and it's telling him and he's telling him to do things right it tells him to flood the school which he does with an axe and wrote uh, he writes there, there, there. They made me do it um, in spray paint. Um, and meanwhile, also there's this character Gretchen, whose dad tried to kill her mom, her, and then her mom uh, stepdad was a jerk, and they just moved into town. And she kind of, like we said, moves towards a bead towards Donnie. Um, she's played by Jenna Malone. I think it was my first Jenna Malone uh, movie that I saw. Like impossible not to. I, I think I probably had a little bit of crush on her when I was. I definitely had a a crush as a kid. I don't know if it was from this or something else, but yeah, yeah. she's she's Um, great. I I love her now even more. In a thankless, manic pixie nightmare girl uh, part. I love her now even more. I love when she shows up in like a Nicholas Winding Refn movie. Oh, yeah. She's just like a weirdo for an hour. Oh, yeah, 100%. She's great in, uh, what is it, Neon Demon? Mm Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so they start kind of getting close. He now has someone that he's connecting with and... But he's also like a shitty high school boyfriend that is like, we need to kiss more. Um, but Frank is, again, escalating more things. He's seeing his therapist, which is getting weirder and weirder. The therapist is trying to hypnotize. He's like taking off his pants and not following stuff. There's a lot of like very weird, awkward stuff, which I think works well from an awkward perspective. Like I wanted that scene over in the same way the therapist wanted the scene over <laughs> as quickly as possible. Um, and... Um, yeah, I'm trying to, like, I mean, there's there's a few things. There's, like, Patrick Swayze plays this, like, self-help guru who's gotten big. And Kitty is obsessed with her tape. She's a gym teacher. And, like, is constantly showing these, like, fear versus uh, happiness. And that's the spectrum. And um, she gets Patrick Swayze to give the seminar at school. And at the time, I thought Donnie, I remember thinking Donnie Darko's rant, like you said, it's almost like a fantasy. Like, he's like, you're an idiot, stupid old man, self-help guru. <laughs> and while that's true, his competing philosophy is also as shitty as his is. Like, his thing is like, 
fear is keeping you from happiness. Those that's the spectrum. If you're scared, you're not happy. All your your fear is keeping you back from doing living your happy life and doing it right. That's a shitty, stupid self help philosophy. Donnie Darko's competing philosophy that he yells at at, at Patrick Swayze in the scene is like, just start being assholes to everyone. <laughs> you know, be shits to them. Make make their life pretty tough, and then they're gonna see. Which is like, uh, like I said, it's it's either a um, very conservative outlook on the world. World's tough. Life's not fair. Deal with it. Or a very, like, 2000-era Bill Maher liberal outlook uh, on the world. But it's like, okay, wait. I'm glad you said your fuck you to him, but you you also had bad advice, Donnie. Uh, but yeah, again, people not- are, like, still, people are still, like, super fat folks. So, like, that speech I kind of, like, was able to mentally bury. But, like, the idea of him, for some reason, doing that and then being, like, very sweet and nice to the... Asian exchange student who seems to only be there so you know Donnie's not racist. It's very weird. Yeah, there was a whole thing on that mystery side of how she fits in. Um, I I think the 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 theory, and I'm not trying to get back to the director's cut, but this was like this is cut like his mic. Some, cut his what? mic. I'm, so, I'm telling our producer to cut his mic. So oh, I'm not going to get back. I'm not going to get back to the director's cut, but. That she is aware of who Donnie is and what he needs to do. And, like, to use the director's cut parlance, she's aware that she's that he's a living receiver and that um, she's a manipulated living or whatever that is, like, supposed to do things. And, like, she has some sort of connection, which is why he gives her the philosophy of time travel at the end. Like, she's she's experiencing some of this and is aware of some of it. That's, like, that's the take I guess sure. that that was a take before the director's cut too, for what it's worth. So uh, it, in my mind, in my mind, uh, the only reason she exists is because uh, Don, there's that thing where Donnie hangs out with the burnout, the burnout kids. Yeah. And they tell that, that woman to go back to China. And Donnie's oh, like, yeah. he's like, leave her alone. And then he still hangs out with the burnout kids. Yeah. Um, I mean, the that, idea is that, that, like, Donnie that, that's is, true like, to high school. It's like, I don't know how to confront the racism of my friends. Maybe I can just make it stop so I'm not uncomfortable. In the moment. It, it, yeah, yeah. I don't I don't hold Donnie responsible for that. No. The, the idea that he's a depressed teen uh, who um, is just like, just like cut it out instead of like not hanging out with them anymore. Like, the idea is he's cool. hanging out with burnout teens. He's engaging in self, self-destructive or a more like transgressive kind of like behavior because he doesn't. He doesn't want. He doesn't want to live in his domestic, no. you know, life. Yeah. So eventually, Frank tells him to burn down Patrick Swayze's house, and he does it. And instead of people being freaked out, he keeps kind of skating, being caught for some of these destructive things that Frank having to do. You find out on the news. Uh oh, this nice, upstanding citizen that everyone's dad golfed with in the town had a secret room that was a child sex dungeon. Uh, which also feels like very edgelord 2001 stuff, but everyone kind of goes, yeah, fuck that guy. Kitty still in the same way that uh, in seemingly reminiscent of the way our world operates now, like Kitty is still a hundred percent loyal and thinks that he was set up, even though they literally found uh, child sex stuff in this person's house. And she was leading a campaign, which I kind of remember feeling like it was just like a little bit too obviously villainous, but since that now that's how every conservative operates anytime, like jim jordan or someone else gets like 
credibly accused of some terrible crimes. There's like it's just the leftist media trying to bring them down. And I guess that is pretty, pretty close to life. But this all kind of culminates in a Halloween party where a, a few things happen. One, um, Jay, or sorry, uh, Donnie goes to Anita Sparrow and needs to talk to her. She's the person who wrote this book, The Philosophy of Time Travel, which we hear little bits of in the movie, um, but seems to relate. Donnie thinks it relates to his situation, and he starts to believe that Anita Sparrow is going through the same thing. So they go to her house. And at that same time, the our, our two bully characters are robbing her house. And there's a fight that ensues, and a car goes down this dirt road right as Jenna Malone or Gretchen gets thrown in the street and runs over and kills Gretchen. It's so and funny, dude. It, it's, it is not a scary scene. It is a... Well, you got it. This is why movies cut away from the car running over a body. Uh, they show it. It doesn't so look good. Funny. It's so funny. Yeah. Uh, it's, it, it reminds me of an, like an MST2K movie where someone someone gets like flinged from a car. It's obviously a dummy. Yeah. And they, it, it, looks, reason, it looks like when fucking Mike D falls off the bridge in the sabotage music video in a very clear, like whatever. It's bad. <laughs> it's like when Jack Black punts the dog in uh, in Anchorman. Like, yeah. Just, but yeah, she gets she gets run over or, or, yeah, or a crash t- dummy in Jenna Malone's uh, clothes gets run over. And the bullies it's run so away. It's so funny because it's like it's like a fucking muscle car. It's like like a Camaro. I know. She Camaro goes under the tires car. and bounces a few times, and he's like Gretchen, Gretchen. Like and he's so. like, and this guy's like, hell yeah, REO Speedwagon, let's fucking go. And I he's know. just trucking along. And he hits her at like he doesn't hit her at twenty, like a hundred miles an hour, then yells it. <laughs> They're in a driveway. What are you? What is she doing in the road? <laughs> so stupid. What'd you do, anyway. Frank? What did you f- yeah, do, so Frank? Yeah, like so the, the guy gets out of the passenger car. He's like, "What'd you do, Frank?" He's been calling Frank the Rabbit. And it does a slow plan into the rabbit suit. We had seen him take off his mask at one point when he burns down the thing. They're at the watching the Evil Dead, and uh, he says, "Why don't you take off your rabbit mask?" And, the bunny says, why don't you take off your human mask? Uh, uh, but he does, and he has a bloody eye socket. Um, and so Donnie, overcome with grief, pulls out the gun that he brought and kills Frank, shoots him in the <laughs> eye. And that's when you're like, oh, shit, this guy was a backwards-in-time ghost, I guess, that was helping him because Donnie killed him and shot him in the eye. And we had already seen that this guy was a human underneath that looked that was this dude. So then he like, you know, then that's when he kind of reaches his like moment of like, I know what I have to do. His mom and his dad, they were having a Halloween at the party at the house because mom and his dad and their youngest sister were going to a sparkle motion thing. So they're all on a plane and he puts uh, he puts Gretchen's dead body in the car with him, drives out to a mountain and sucks the plane engine off the plane that his parents are taking. And then he peacefully goes back to his house lays in his bed the jet engine falls in the house and again my interpretation up till recently was that 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 it wasn't the jet engine coming back through that solved anything but like him not being a part of the universe anymore stopped all the events that you were going to see and made everything right that like his 
him meeting Frank the Bunny, him killing Frag, him being meeting Gretchen. He caused all this pain. He can set everything right again with everyone if he lays in his bed when the jet engine comes as opposed to being on a golf course somewhere. So, so yeah, I mean, that is – then there's like this the, – the they do the montage of Mad World and then you all see like – you know, me are familiar. Did you like the song? Be honest. I liked it then. I like it now. I mean, it's I cloying, too. but it, I like it. I it was a I think I was using maybe it was I think it was even pre Limeware Kazaa I forget what I was using in the dorm room but I was like what is this song I need I need you have it um yeah. I definitely illegally downloaded it via whatever yeah um mm. but I will say the it is a song that ubiquity has ruined any serious version of it anymore like I do like the song I think it's a a cool cover um but if I saw this in a movie right now. 100% it would be played for a comedy bit. Oh, no yeah. one is using this for a serious song. We're, I'm waiting for, like, Danny McBride to play it as a joke in Righteous yeah. Gemstones. You know, like, someone who, like, gets that, gets that this was something that was very powerful at a specific moment in time. Yeah. And then it was in a Gears of War commercial, like, five years later. And then now it's fucking funny. Yeah. I mean, like... I, I mean, the, the thing is, there will be a new generation that rediscovers it on its own, removed from the parody of it, and finds it emotionally evocative again. But I don't think we're at that point. If I saw this on a TV show in the next year, probably the next five years, it would 100% be played for comedy. It would be Will Ferrell and Step Brothers looking out a window with rain coming down, and he hits play on the jukebox, and this song comes. Like, that's what it would be. It's going to take another 20 years before it goes back around to being emotionally affecting. Yeah, but it's, it'll happen. It'll happen. Um, I was just picturing they're going around. They're showing Frank making his rabbit art mask. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Well, you got to um, see where everyone was. Where was everyone on the moment that the artifact came through the portal and created the temporary universe? Frank making a he made it. His art. Do you think that Jenna Jenna Malone's violent uh, ex? Ex stepdad or whatever. No, her father. Her actual father. Do you think Jenna Malone's uh, father, um, who disappeared after, um, I don't know, he got a nail in his he got a nail in his head, which activated his psycho psychometer. <laughs> it activated his, his murder rage. He sends her a box of blood every month. I don't know. Um, do you think that when he comes and just disappears her, it's appropriate for Donnie to go, you know what you need? My penis inside of you. Jesus Christ. <laughs> uh, no. Do you think that that was appropriate? No. Um, I also, do you think that Donnie killing himself at the end, the, 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 the husband was like, that town has had enough murders. I'm not going to murder my ex-wife. <laughs> Here's what's so funny. <laughs> he's just he's just as culpable, or whatever, as a fucking Jim Cunningham. Like he's gonna is is Patrick Swayze's character. Like he's gonna do his bad shit no matter what. Here's what's so funny. So the first time the jet engine comes through, the family's standing around just calmly talking to each other, and Donnie ro- rolls up on the bike because he didn't sleep there last night. But nobody knew he didn't sleep there last night. They're like, oh, hey, there's Donnie. Like, it's not like they knew that he wasn't found in the rubble yet. And this one, it's somehow they all know that he's been killed uh, in the bed. Maybe they saw some evidence, but I'm sorry. If a jet engine falls on you, you got to lift that. They didn't know if he was under there or not yet, (laughs) which implies that, like, in the 
other universe when it first happens, they're like, could be under there, could be not. It's really a Schrodinger's cat situation. And <laughs> no reason to get really bummed out about it till we know one way or the other if they found the body. Or because they're crying before they wheel the body out. Oh, yeah. But I, I like it was so funny. It's like, well, the first time, why were they so goddamn cold? Wouldn't they also assume that he could have been under there? Like, does he leave every night? And if so, do something about that, parents. Do you think if he's gone every night sleeping in the nature? Like, do something, please. Do you think that maybe the night that they weren't panicking because he wasn't in there, it was because there was no signs of anything. And then the night that they're panicking, it's because that entire bedroom was strawberry jam. I mean, maybe like, but I'm sorry. Like if a jet engine falls on you, all of, all, of, all of the strawberry jam is under that jet engine. Like it's not like hitting them and exploding. It's under there. They got to move that jet engine. I'm thinking it's like when you hit, um, it's like if you hit like a watermelon with a sledgehammer, like it's going up, it's going around, it's going all over. That's why you got to wear, you know what? That's why you got to wear ponchos in the first four rolls. That's why, you know what? It's smashing. figure this out, let's stop now. Let's review a Gallagher special right in the middle of this episode and then come back. There's so many. They're all on Prime. If they if they go off Prime, they are gone forever. <laughs> I, think, I don't think there's another way to watch them. So if hopefully Amazon Prime retains those rights forever or there will be uh, – we're going to end up scrounging a VHS copy in. <laughs> Somewhere, but anyway, what happens when that happens? Uh, the t-shirt, the Gallagher t-shirt that you got me, um, will just disappear for like no Marty reason. McFly's family. No, <laughs> this, this was also on Amazon Prime, and now it's gone. Uh, you've lost the rights to your t-shirt. Uh, so the final, like the final image of this movie, was always one that I thought was kind of weird. Like I didn't really know what to make of it, and now I find it weird in a very like. Probably it's not good that I started laughing at the end of this movie. Jenna Malone is riding his bike, her bike, and she goes up to this neighbor kid, this little like blonde, like fucking, <laughs> like uh, uh, I don't know, like like a neighbor kid in a '90s sitcom. I don't know how else to describe him. He's blonde, he's shaggy hair. He's probably like he rides his bike old. around the block until somebody needs to talk until to him for talks plot to reasons. Him. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. She's like, and Jenna Malone's like. What happened here? He's like, a jet engine fell from the sky. She's like, oh, was anyone hurt? Yeah. Well, they already wheeled out his body. How does this kid? Everyone knows that Donnie Darko is dead. This kid knows. Did he talk to He's like, hey, family. Just to let you know, I talked to the police officers. You should be crying right now because they found Donnie. Poor Donnie. Uh, but anyways. He's the on-scene like, reporter for Linda, Linda LRB for, kid, for Nick News. Yeah. He's like, why did he die? I had to get the scoop by crawling through a window upstairs. Yeah, he's a wonder shows and reporter. <laughs> that kid's toast. Who are you oppressing today? <laughs> um, that kid looks like... <laughs> God damn. That kid looks like the stage at the end of a Gallagher show. You know Gallagher? Smash, smash, comedian. It's very popular. It's 1988. <laughs> Honestly, t- top of the food chain as far as we're concerned. Um, I kind of tune out a little bit when he starts smashing fruit. Really more of a fan of his political humor. Yeah. I also don't like my mom and women. <laughs> um, uh, um, but, uh, I mean, did you ever notice how long they take to pick out fruit? I'm at the grocery store for eight hours with this lady. <laughs> Just taking forever to pick out fruit. Um... <laughs> 
maybe a reference to a specific character <laughs> special. Who knows? Um, watch the tapes, guys. Yeah, so she's like, yeah, one kid didn't make it. And she's <laughs> like, did you know? make it. Yeah, she's like, did you know him? And he's like, yeah, that's his mom over there. And Janet Malone waves at the mom, who's, like, smoking a cigarette. And the mom, like, looks up and waves back. And then it cuts back to Janet Malone waving. And this other kid then reaches up his arm and starts to wave. And the movie cuts to black. And I, I've always thought, like, what what's the meaning of the other kid then waving? Like, the little eight-year-old? Like, he thinks I, like, I the get... mom is waving at him because he can't see Janet Malone waving. I, I mean, I don't know. It's a it's a really weird moment to end the movie on. But I did start laughing out loud of like, do you think that, okay, so everything in this before movie... I'm like, wow, everything's a weird mystery. And this time I was like, oh, my God, this is like, what are you supposed to take from why the kid is like, why was that an important moment to include? Like the two of them waving at each other, some semblance of recognition. Are you ending on a joke that like, hey, if kids see people wave, they're probably going to wave too. waving like laughter is contagious. Like I don't, I don't know what the fuck it means. It doesn't I think seem to mean anything. Every every time Richard Kelly tries to make me laugh in this movie, uh, it doesn't happen except for once. Which one? Uh, and every time that he wants a moment to be serious and land emotionally, I go, I go, <laughs> car hit girl. <laughs> yeah, I know. Got some air on that one. <laughs> dun, 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 um. <laughs> oh, there's one joke. There's one joke that he, that is in the movie that he steps on really quickly. Which is, um, Kitty's having her freak out, and she goes, sometimes I doubt your commitment oh. to sparkle motion. Yeah, that's the funniest line in the movie by far. I, like, that is such if a funny line. If the movie had ten more lines like that, this movie would be five stars. Yeah. It's a great line. Very funny. Well delivered. Yeah, I, but I, I, this movie was a mixed bag. Like, I'm glad I rewatched it. It, I'm never gonna watch this again that I can think of, like, it's not going to be something like, hey, when you're old enough, I got to show you this awesome movie like Donnie Darko. Like, I probably will be for, like, Goodfellas or something for my kids. You know, but it was fun to put a button on. I hadn't seen it in 20 years. I clearly need to rewatch The Box. I want one Richard Kelly movie that I'm a fan of. Because I do still sort of believe, even if he's somewhat focused on the wrong things, I think he has a lot of good ideas. He's clearly a talented filmmaker. He's, like, doing some stuff that is very specific to him. I think sometimes someone who has, like, I have too many ideas and I want to cram it into a movie can work well. I think my memory of the box is that that's actually a movie where it works really well. I was hoping that this held up a little better than it did. Um, But, yeah, I mean, it's, again, if this is still your favorite movie and... Or one of your favorite movies and you love it, I get it. I watch it all the time. I absolutely loved it, too. It just, you know, it is the quasi nostalgia audit where it didn't work it's not a five-star movie it's not my top 50 movies of all time like it would have been 22 years ago but uh you know it was fun to revisit and kind of say oh okay here's some things i liked and i'm probably the age closer to the age that roger ebert was when he wrote his review so it's also like we've called out a lot the stuff that didn't when I was closer to Donnie Darko's age, that didn't seem poorly scripted or poorly acted, uh, I have aged into going, okay, it's a little bit over the top and not not well made. And there's there's a lot of immaturity in some of the writing and the asides. But I still hope, like, I mean, I'll watch when when if he makes a sequel to Donnie Darko, I will 100% watch. I'll, I'll watch anything that Richard Kelly does. He doesn't get to make enough movies for me to for him to, even if they're all misses, 
to have worn out of his welcome, and they at least are interesting. The 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 thing that it reminds me of a little. I haven't seen Bo is Not Afraid, but I know a lot of people that have seen Bo is Not Afraid that are have similar movie taste to me, and it's it's a, just a complete fucking mixed bag of I loved it and oh my god I hated it. You have to see it because there's so much to talk about, and I feel like it's it's a mix of that and I you know someone. Someone who's like, I'm going to throw all these ideas out there and whether they coalesce for you and whether they don't coalesce for you, like, it's at least interesting enough to be, like, something that I want to see and I want to talk about. And if Richard Kelly makes one more movie, I'll see it. If he makes ten more movies, I'll see it, even if um, I don't think he's quite made his masterpiece yet. And uh, even though I may at one point have said Donnie Darko, it's I've moved on from that. <laughs> the world has moved on. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll say, okay, so saying something like, you know, we've knocked this movie quite a bit, but like saying something like kind of nice about this movie and like why it resonated with people, because I feel like that's big task of this, this these couple months, right? Yeah. It's like, I do feel like all teenagers kind of feel a little doomed, right? And yeah. I feel like this is a movie that can kind of blow up that apocalyptic sense of doom into something bigger. You don't have enough perspective. We talked about this last month a lot with the John Cusack movies. You don't have enough perspective to know that you're you're going to have breakups in your life. You're going to have setbacks. You're going to have disappointments. You're not going to do your best at an academic or personal achievement that you wanted to. But life moves on. You move on. You have many lives within your life, right? And they end by you surviving the last one, right? Yeah. Um, and this sort of like apocalyptic thinking, I think like, invades a lot of thought for teenagers and i I certainly invaded mine um and like i i don't know if you ever had this feeling aaron probably not um do you ever have the feeling that you're like i'm probably not gonna like i'm probably i've got like a premonition i'm not gonna live to be 23 like you didn't think you were gonna survive college or you didn't think you were gonna get to college is this something you ever had yeah i mean i i constantly thought that like the idea of like turning 30 when I was like 18 was like, that's probably not going to happen to me. Probably some of it's just like, you can't visualize yourself being that age. And so like, you just kind of assume it's not going to happen. But I agree that there is a doom component that makes you feel like that. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I had, I had that. And like, you know, there were moments when I was graduating high school where I was like, <clears throat> am I even going to make it to college? Like what's going to happen? And not cause I was living hard or whatever. It was cause like, I just, I didn't, couldn't picture myself in that part of my, next part of my life. And I was like, maybe I'm just someone that that doesn't happen for. That combined with the fact that the movie is about time, tra- the movie uses time travel as sort of a, an, a, a, touches on it as a metaphor for regret, because a time machine is always sort of a metaphor for like going back and fixing the past or going yeah. back and, and setting yourself up for a better future. It's it's kind of always that, right? And, and that, those two combined, I feel like, really like capture something that not a lot of teen movies do i think successfully and like why this movie does get honored i don't yeah. think this movie is great at a, as a time travel metaphor at all and i think it's kind of clumsy as a as a, a, a um a psychological thriller um but the fe- that overall sense of doom that he captures here that like feeling that your life is like over at 16 um yeah is is palpable and i'll say that's that's nice i just i I think we've had other works since then or around then that captured that feeling better. Like one movie I can think of that's I would recommend instead of watching Connie Darko is watch Virgin Suicides. Incredible movie. Yeah. 
it's obviously darker i think in in a certain way like it maybe is a little hits closer to home for some people but like it's darker but it's definitely not darko it's not darko no there's only one dark or two darkos in the biz donnie and s five i think Uh, um yeah but uh i think virgin suicides is a movie from this era that i i really same year 2001 no 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 uh two years earlier 99 oh yeah but it's that really captured it was definitely pre-college yeah great score also but um really captured that feeling that that feeling that like your life is over um yeah and it also also wrangles with conservatism in a way that i think is way more interesting um yeah uh yeah virgin suicide is a great movie great call out that yeah if you if you want something related that holds up a little better can't do worse than virgin suicides um yeah next week peter we're going right into another huge one with a guest with with a friend of the show rick kelly not going to talk about a movie that was probably my favorite movie for five to ten years i don't know somewhere between 99 and like 2005 2006 uh, a little movie called fight club uh which i was uh i think it like made me understand what a director did in movies i was obsessed with this movie um which is uh at the time when i no one had ever told me about it and i watched it on a screener copy at the video store i thought that was a unique position to have and then i show it to all my friends and i go out in the world peter it turns out a lot of people like Fight Club. Some of them for really bad reasons. They've taken the wrong message from this particular film. So I'm sure that's going to be a long episode. There'll be a lot to talk about. I, Peter, I have no idea what your feelings on Fight Club are. Or what uh, loved Fight Club when I was a youngster. Um, haven't seen it in a while. I have a feeling that I will also love it now. I, I do too. I mean, I I haven't seen it in a long time. I saw it in high school as well. I saw it when it came out in 99. So it's a couple years before Donnie Darko and I, um, but it's been a long time and I'm probably, I could probably tell you every line in that movie, like still as of, there's so much in this movie too, that I'm like, oh, I remember that little guy's head coming in. And I remember always thinking in a weird costume, like I'd seen this movie, Donnie Darko so much that, but weird. And then we're doing uh, Goodfellas with our friend Carrie and yeah, there'll be a great guest uh, and Goodfellas will probably be one that we'll have universal praise for because i can't imagine any of us go uh, i i think i watch goodfellas every couple years so this is not going to be like a nostalgia this that's probably the movie that i've had the shortest break from i think a lot of these movies i haven't seen a long time even movies i think i'm still gonna really enjoy but i I watch goodfellas all the time yeah yeah uh very very excited and um i don't know i don't know they're uh they're a new yorker they're going to come in. They're going to talk about all the pizza slices they eat in the movie. There's a lot of pizza slices. I like I like Mystic Pizza. We could ignore the movie and focus on the pizza. I'm just saying it's a it's an it's an option. it's an option. <laughs> and then the uh, and then we're doing sh- and then we're doing the Shawshank Redemption. So that'll be our first month. And then we'll announce the order for the second month of this. Uh, and when we have time to watch both overnight and the uh stomach to watch boondock saints again uh in the in july yeah with that hope you have a wonderful night try not to be an artifact a living receiver and if you see any manipulate living or undead get out or do exactly what they tell you to because you're the universe depends on it yeah we we think that you should practice self-care but if there's a jet fuselage coming towards you just lay down maybe learn to open a portal 
Maybe <laughs> you lazy piece of shit. <laughs> more please go to patreon.com slash we love to watch and if you can chip in a few bucks that would really help us keep the lights on and keep us moving forward uh it wasn't an implicit threat by peter he just didn't know how to say it but either way we'll continue to make more but it would be helpful uh, as we explain to our loved ones where all our money is going which is all on server space uh <laughs> if you can't <laughs> uh if you don't have a few bucks to chip in we totally understand and you want to support the show we truly absolutely would appreciate a uh, review on iTunes. I know every podcast says it, and it's because it really does help, and so every podcast wants that help. So please go leave us a positive review so that when people find this show organically, they hopefully want to tune in and listen. And thanks again for all of your listenership and support and time throughout the years. Uh, we really do appreciate you. Uh, with kisses and smooches, Peter and Aaron. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs>